Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have some big law personnel news. The EU gears up for a big antitrust crackdown, Paxton impeachment trial in Texas, Navarro contempt trial, and Column Tuesday, this time about maybe not putting kids into debt for their school lunches. Let's ask not what our country can do for us, but ask instead what we can do for our minimum competence and read today's legal news. On this day in legal history, September 5th, 1774, about nine miles as the crow flies from where I'm recording this, the first Continental Congress convened to discuss the intolerable acts of 1774. On September 5th, the first Continental Congress convened at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, marking a pivotal moment in America's journey to independence. Representatives from 12 of the 13 American colonies gathered to deliberate on the future of the colonies amidst escalating British aggression. Notable figures such as Samuel Adams, George Washington, and John Adams were among the delegates who discussed potential strategies, including boycotting British goods to assert the rights of the American colonists. The Historic Assembly was a response to the Coercive Acts, or the Intolerable Acts as they were known in America, which were implemented by the British Parliament to reassert control over the colonies following the Boston Tea Party. These acts had severe repercussions, including the closure of Boston Port and the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter. The colonies united in solidarity with goods being sent to Massachusetts from as far as Georgia and calls for a Continental Congress echoing across nine colonies by late spring of 1774. Virginia played a significant role with its Committee of Correspondence initiating the call for the Congress. Delegates were elected through various means, including colonial legislatures and committees of correspondence. George Washington, who was elected at the first Virginia Convention, was a staunch supporter of using non-importation as a leverage against British policies, a stance he had maintained since 1769. During the Congress, Peyton Randolph was appointed as the president, and one of the first resolutions passed was the endorsement of the Suffolk Resolves, which encouraged citizens to disobey the intolerable acts and foster a spirit of resistance. The delegates also embarked on drafting the Continental Association, a policy that aimed to unify the colonies economically by ceasing British imports and exports, enforced by local and colony-wide committees of inspection. The Congress was not without its challenges, as delegates grappled with defining American rights and grievances and debating Britain's right to regulate trade in the colonies. A significant proposal during this time was Joseph Galloway's Plan of Union, which sought to establish a collaborative relationship between the American colonies and Britain, though it was narrowly defeated. As the Congress progressed, the delegates formulated a Declaration of Rights and Grievances, emphasizing the people's right to participate in legislative councils. This period of intense discussion and planning culminated in the decision to convene a second Continental Congress the following spring, a move that indicated the escalating tensions and the looming possibility of conflict with Britain. The gathering was not just a forum for dialogue, but a precursor to the unity and resistance that would characterize the American Revolution, setting the stage for a historic change in the relationship between the colonies and the British Empire. A little bit of inside legal industry baseball to start off the new week. Miguel Zaldivar has been reappointed as the CEO of global law firm Hogan Levels for a second four-year term, extending his leadership until 2028. Since assuming the role in 2020, Zaldivar has guided the firm to record financial outcomes in 2021, despite the general decline in demand in the legal sector. The firm's board chair praised Zaldivar's visionary strategy and leadership, which she believes will foster further success. Last year, the firm reported over $2.4 billion in gross revenue, positioning it among the top 15 law firms in the U.S. However, this was a 6.7% decrease from the 2021 record revenue, a dip Zaldivar attributes to a slump in M&A transactions. Looking ahead, Zaldivar anticipates a robust financial performance in 2023, backed by a strong balance sheet. While not actively seeking mergers following the stalled talks with Sherman and Sterling, Zaldivar mentioned the firm remains open to suitable opportunities and is welcoming of high-performing teams joining the firm. 
The European Union is gearing up to implement its largest crackdown on anti-competitive practices in the digital sector, a move that might ignite fresh legal disputes between regulators and major tech companies. The forthcoming Digital Markets Act, or DMA, set to be enforced early next year, will introduce stringent regulations to prevent dominant firms from monopolizing new markets. This includes prohibiting platforms from favoring their own services and restricting the misuse of data collected from third-party vendors. By September 6th, the EU antitrust regulators are expected to unveil a list of services, potentially including giants like Google Search, Apple's App Store, Amazon's Marketplace, and Facebook, which will be governed by these new rules. These companies have begun dialogues with EU officials expressing concerns over the scope of the regulations and potential compliance challenges. Post the announcement, the companies will have a six-month window to align their services with the new guidelines or to initiate legal challenges against the regulatory decisions. However, experts believe that the platforms might find it difficult to present a valid argument in court if they meet the criteria specified in the DMA. The impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a prominent conservative figure aligned with former President Donald Trump, is set to commence, spotlighting allegations of office abuse and bribery linked to his relationship with donor Nate Paul. Paxton, who has been embroiled in scandals since assuming office in 2015, faces accusations of using his position to benefit Paul, a real estate investor, amidst an FBI investigation and financial troubles. The trial is expected to delve deep into Paxton's personal life, including an extramarital affair which he allegedly went to great lengths to conceal, including using secret communication methods and clandestine meetings facilitated by Paul. The House impeachment managers have amassed nearly 4,000 pages of evidence indicating that Paxton accepted significant favors from Paul, including home remodeling materials and employment for his mistress in Austin. The trial, anticipated to last two to three weeks, will be presided over by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a Paxton ally. Paxton has denounced the impeachment as a political sham and maintains his innocence. The unfolding scandal has significantly impacted Paxton's approval ratings, especially among the conservative Christian base that he has historically had support from due to his stance on family values and Christian principles. At least his public-facing stance, that is. The trial is expected to be a pivotal moment in Texas politics, potentially altering the trajectory of Paxton's career and the political landscape in the state writ large. Peter Navarro, a former economic advisor to ex-president Donald Trump, is set to face trial on Tuesday over two misdemeanor counts of contempt of Congress. Navarro, who had also been part of the COVID-19 task force, declined to testify or furnish documents to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack. He has pleaded not guilty to the charges, asserting that his refusal was based on Trump's invocation of executive privilege, a legal principle that protects certain White House communications from being disclosed. However, U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta, overseeing the trial, criticized Navarro for not providing specific details about his communication with Trump regarding the testimony and rejected Navarro's request to use a phone call with Trump as evidence during the trial. If convicted, Navarro could face a jail term ranging from 30 days to one year and or a fine up to $100,000 for each count. This case follows a similar conviction of another former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, on contempt charges in 2022. And look, down in that culvert, there's something staring back at us. Why, why, why? It's this week's column. It must be column Tuesday. And on a Tuesday. In this week's column, I discuss Massachusetts becoming the eighth state to implement a universal free lunch program for school children, financed by a 4% tax on individuals earning over $1 million annually, a policy expected to generate about $1 billion each year. This move comes as states are establishing their own lunch programs following the expiration of the federal initiative that began during the COVID-19 pandemic. While the program aims to prevent student hunger, which is obviously laudable, critics argue, including me, that it represents unsound tax policy, potentially encouraging capital flight and tax avoidance. Despite having sufficient surplus to fund the lunch program without this new tax, Massachusetts chose to levy it, possibly politicizing the provision of student lunches and tying it to the fluctuating popularity of wealth redistribution concepts. 
I suggest that a more stable solution should be sought at the national level as the disparity in educational spending between states could jeopardize the consistent provision of student lunches throughout all of them. Reflecting on the successful federal free lunch program during the pandemic, I advocate for a national approach to address the issue and caution against the risks of politicizing student nutrition through state-level policies. In sum, this is not a place for the state laboratories of democracy to experiment with how little support the student body can get by with. We have a solution. It is the policy that was just permitted to expire. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, you can find us on Mastodon on the esq.social instance. I'm at Andrew and my co-host Gina is at Gina. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it is not legal advice. And reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player of choice, we'd appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever it is that you get your finely crafted podcasts. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email newsletter form if that's your jam. All of the links to stories we cover will also be available on links.esq.social, which is our link aggregator in the Fediverse. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember, owls are just birds that went to college. Owls are just birds that went to college.